Walking the Dog is a podcast on creation, evolution, genesis, apologetics, biblical issues, and quite frankly, any issue that really takes my fancy that I want to ramble on and on and on about. My name is Paul Taylor, and this podcast is produced on behalf of New Life Creation Ministries and can be found at the website www.justsixdays.com. Walking the Dog is a podcast produced by New Life Creation Ministries. For more information, look at www.justsixdays.com. On today's show, we're looking at how we split doctrines into primary, secondary, and tertiary doctrines, and what the doctrines are about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'll be examining those using my books, Itching Ears, and the Letters to the Thessalonians. Hi there, welcome to Walking the Dog. Uh, this is episode 13 of Walking the Dog. This is uh, my podcast. Uh, my name is Paul Taylor. Uh, it's a podcast produced by New Life Creation Ministries. I call myself that. Uh, the work that I do is given the label New Life Creation Ministries, uh, mainly because I'm uh, part of the New Life Church, one of the leaders of the New Life Church, a small church plant in Pensacola, Florida. So you can see that the ministry that I'm doing then is under the leadership of that particular church. And you can find my website at justsixdays.com. Well, I like to talk about biblical issues and apologetics and uh, creation and evolution and really anything that um, <laughs> uh, that that, uh, that appeals, really, that I want to discuss. I'm going to mention um, two of my books today, and the first one I need to mention just in passing because I've got a new edition out of um, my book, Itching Ears. Well, it was originally published under, t under the title No Time for Itching Ears. I'm now uh, just labeling it as Itching Ears, but it's really showing how all the major doctrines of uh, the Christian faith are founded in Genesis. Because uh, it's quite important to realize that they're all founded, uh, they all have a basis and a foundation on the truth of Genesis. So uh, that's quite an important point um, there. Um, in, it's really the introduction to that book that I want to just mention a little bit to you because in the introduction to the book I I tried to divide various doctrines into primary, secondary and tertiary doctrines. Now, sometimes people say, well, we shouldn't divide on the secondaries and therefore the implication is that secondary doctrines are not important. Now I think there's a couple of different levels and when you say don't divide on the secondaries, well it depends what you mean about not dividing. There are some primary doctrines on which we will divide and they would be the inerrancy of scripture and uh, the God as Trinity and the deity of Christ and there's a number of things like that. They're primary doctrines and we will divide on those if um, you know, I can't have fellowship with somebody who doesn't accept those 
primary doctrines. But then there are secondary doctrines, and the thing is, secondary doctrines are important. Now, here's, here's an interesting example. Uh, the second coming of Jesus, the fact that Jesus will return to the earth bodily, is, I believe, a primary doctrine. And I will divide, I think we will divide and have to say we can't have fellowship if there's somebody who does not accept that truth. However, the way in which Jesus will return, what's known as your eschatological system, that is a secondary doctrine. Now when I say it's a secondary doctrine, I don't mean it's unimportant. I think a church needs to take a position on eschatology, and I need to take a position and I have written on the subject, and I'll continue to write on the subject. I've written one book on the subject of eschatology, and I will write, I'll be writing another one shortly. And therefore, it is important. I do believe there's a correct position, and I do believe that there are other positions around which are not correct. So can we, uh, do we divide on this as a secondary doctrine? Well, there are a number of issues on which I'm going to differ with other Christians in other churches, and I don't stop having fellowship with them across churches. If we have a cross-church meeting, for example, they want to organize a creation meeting uh, or something of that sort, then um, I'm not going to divide on these secondary issues. And there'll be things like eschatology, charismatic gifts, Calvinism or Arminianism, things of that sort. I have a position on, the, on each of those matters and what I think is correct and what I think is incorrect. But I'm not going to divide for a parachurch meeting. But it will divide in terms of church. Um, a church will take a position. And we will divide on those. Now, there are tertiary doctrines below that, which are much less important. And there, we're not even going to divide within church. There are plenty of people who will differ on things like what's the best songs for worship are and uh, the best uh, mode of worship, what sort of instruments we should use and so on. That's, that's a tertiary issues. We can hold different views there but the secondary issues are quite important. They don't stop us, uh, they don't divide us for parachurch issues but they do divide us when we're talking about um, the necessity of certain church matters. So I hope that's, uh, that's clear because for quite a bit of the rest of this uh, podcast I'm going to be talking about eschatology and you know if I come to do a creation talk at your church then I'm not going to be discussing eschatology because we'll have different eschatologies that's a parachurch meeting I'm not going to worry I hope you won't worry that my views are different but that does not mean to say that I don't, don't have a view that does not mean to say that I don't know what's right and what's wrong on the issue it's just it's not an essential concerning salvation and those issues and therefore although churches need to take a position on it um, then it's, it doesn't stop meeting with people who have a different view uh, in a parachurch setting okay so you'll find all that so the arguments on, on that trying to make clear what my position is there you'll find all that in the introduction to my book itching ears which is published by Just Six Days Publications, and you can find it on my website, justsixdays.com. Well, that brings me to the whole subject of eschatology, then. What we're going to say about that. You see, I'm out on the road at the moment, I'm driving, and I've just seen a car with a bumper sticker on the back. Actually, it has loads of bumper stickers on the back. 
and uh, <laughs> you get a measure of the sort of people concerned when you look at the uh, the sort of bumper stickers that they had um, for example one of the bumper stickers said if it ain't the King James Version it ain't the Bible now you can see what they're saying there that person is clearly a member of a King James Version only church fellowship that's the position they take that the only inspired version of the Bible that you should read is the King James Version there seem to be a number of people around in, um, in and around the Pensacola area because of a certain Bible college in the Pensacola area uh, so there are, the influence of this view is quite strong in this area and I have to tell you I think it's a mistaken view I think it's a view that is itself in error it is nonsense to suggest that the King James Version is the only possible view. Historically, it doesn't hold water, because, you know, when the King James Version was produced, there were a lot of people at the time who said, no, we should not use the King James Version because uh, it's the Catholic Version, because, of course, the uh, King James Version translators uh, produced a translation of the Apocrypha, which you can still see if you get the um, original 1611 text of the uh, King James Version you'll still find uh, the Apocrypha in it and those people felt that uh, you should stick to the Geneva Bible and by the way those people included the Mayflower, Mayflower Pilgrims their view was very strong on this that you should not be using the King James Version that the only acceptable version to them was the Geneva Bible, preferably the 1599 Geneva Bible, and it was important to be using that particular Bible. That's the version that the Mayflower Pilgrims were using. And so if we want to talk, for example, of the foundations of the United States and the spiritual heritage of the United States, and you want to trace it back to the Mayflower Pilgrims um, as bringing a, a particular uh, Christian faith into the area which is now occupied by the United States, then uh, you will have to accept that the that those uh, pilgrims did not like the King James version, and you need to take that into account uh, uh, as, you, as you look at things. Now, you see. I don't really have a problem, well, I have no problem whatsoever with people using the King James Version. No problem whatsoever. It's a very, very good version of the Bible, produced for its time. Now, the English language has changed since 1611 and since 1769 as well, when the fourth edition was used. And, by the way, the authorised version, the only authorised version, authorised under British law of the King James Version, people talk about the authorised version, the only authorised version is the fourth edition, the 1769 edition. The 1611 edition is not authorised, and strictly speaking, therefore, uh, not, re not registered, not actually a correct version for use, and yet so many people want to go back to the 1611 version. So, um, I really got onto a bunny trail there, because... Uh, this this car that I saw had a bumper sticker on that said that about the King James Version. But that's not the bumper sticker I wanted to concentrate on. There was another, even larger bumper sticker on the car, and it said this. Jesus is coming soon, and boy is he mad. <laughs> Jesus is coming soon, and boy is he mad. Now, <sighs> what do we make of that? Jesus is coming back as a conquering king. 
But is it right to say he's mad? Well, I don't like the use of the word mad anyway as a synonym for the word angry, because mad doesn't is not really a synonym of angry. Mad implies that there's something mentally unbalanced and to say that Jesus is mentally unbalanced would be wrong would be wrong to say he's coming back as the conquering king is correct but to say that's because he's mentally unbalanced is not correct Jesus will be uh, when he returns in full control of his faculties he is after all God and he will be and is in full control of his faculties and knows exactly what he's doing so the idea of saying Jesus is coming back and boy is he mad is something that I find actually a little bit objectionable I'm not really keen on that description of Jesus but it brings us really to, to consider how is Jesus going to be coming back? In what form is he going to be coming back? And uh, this is quite important because there are many people who believe that Jesus' next appearance, the next appearance on the clock, so to speak, on the calendar of things, would be uh, Jesus uh, rapturing the church, taking them up secretly to be with him. Uh, and th this is based on a verse in Second Thessalonians. Have you been confused by the Noah movie? There's no reason to be. What you need is a good book that will help you understand everything about the flood in nice, easy to understand terms. Which is why I wrote the book Don't Miss the Boat. See, at the time of Noah and the flood, there are a lot of people who miss the boat. Don't you miss it? You get hold of the book, described as a must-read by creation speaker Carl Kirby at www.justsixdays.com. Now, the prevailing view among Bible-believing Christians in the United States, and to some extent in the United Kingdom as well, is that there'll be this event at some point in the future which could happen imminently, which they refer to as the rapture. And uh, that would be followed shortly by seven years of tribulation and then um, the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Um, there are some other views, views that view the uh, millennium as figurative, there are some who think that uh, the world will gradually be evangelized and Christians will be in positions of power and uh, then Christ's reign will come. They would be called post-millennialists post and there are those who believe that the uh, millennium is simply figurative of the period of time between the first and second coming of Jesus. That's the view that I used to hold to for many years and that's probably the prevailing view in Bible-believing churches in Britain. Um, now, it seems to me that what the, uh, the book of Revelation says about the millennium uh, must be literally true. It, it strikes me that as I keep reading it, it can't be figurative. Therefore, the idea of there being a millennium and that we're in the period before the millennium and that Jesus will return before that millennium, in other words, the pre-millennial view seems to be the correct one. But what about this period of time known as the rapture? Well, let's see what scripture says about it, then we can see what the, uh, the timeline approximately for the future is. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 17 is where we read about it, where the Apostle Paul says, Then we who are alive, well let's start from verse 16, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain with and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Okay, so the phrase there is caught up. There is a catching up of those who are alive at that point to be with Jesus. And in the Latin Vulgate Bible, the one that uh, Jerome produced, the word used there was uh, the Latin word raptizo, from which uh, we get the English word rapture. Because the word means something different um, today than it did then. But it's, it's being caught up. So that's the event. So clearly there is an event. The, the rapture is an event. It's there in Scripture. So it is an event. The question is, when is it going to happen? There are basically three views about when it could happen. There are uh, the large number of uh, Bible-believing evangelicals in the United States believe that the rapture will happen before the period of time known as the Tribulation, the big trouble, if you like, when persecution will be widespread and uh, the Antichrist is going to be here. Another view is that maybe the rapture would happen, the catching up would happen at the end of the tribulation, and still another view is that actually they would, the tribulation could be split up. Some people, known as pre-wrath people, would split up that period of time into two sections, which they refer to as the tribulation and the wrath. So they still have the rapture occurring before Jesus comes back for the millennium, but they call them, they say that they're post-tribulation because they only define the first bit of the, of the period of time, um, uh, as being the, uh, as being the tribulation. Then they say there's a, a period of wrath, and then eventually, um, uh, Jesus coming back in glory, the glorious appearing. Now, Let's see when that will happen. Clearly the event is meant to be a time of resurrection because it says in 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, the dead in Christ shall rise first. So it seems sensible to look at the various passages in the Bible that refer to resurrection, one of the most famous of which would be 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let's see what the Apostle Paul says there. From verse 22, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are, who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. He must reign till he's put all enemies under his feet. Now this coming, uh, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty three, the Greek word is parousia. This is referring to the second advent of Jesus and generally speaking is taken to refer to his glorious appearing. Because we're talking about the coming of Jesus. But there are some people who will say, well, that coming lasts a period of time over seven years. But... Um, Generally speaking, it's, it's, it's referring to um, a resurrection when Jesus comes again. We need some other scriptures really to emphasize this point. And uh, we turn back to Matthew 24 and 25, because a lot of people quite rightly have said that in order to understand all biblical prophecy, you need to have a look at these direct prophecies of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25, and the equivalent passages in uh, the other Gospels, especially in Luke. Well, let's have a look at uh, some things in Matthew 24, 25. Let's start in 24 and we'll look at verse 29. 
And we read here, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and um, uh, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's everybody seeing uh, the Son of Man after the tribulation. Now, of course, all premillennials believe that, that, that everybody will see the Son of Man coming. But the point is that uh, the elect are then gathered at this point at the sound of a trumpet. So it seems to be that this is referring to the resurrection happening at this point. Now, you see, if you're going to take a pre-tribulation position, then you've got two lots of resurrection. So you've got a resurrection happening at the time of the rapture, and then, but then you've got one at the end of the tribulation, at the glorious appearing. Now, it would seem to me that it's more sensible to suggest that this is one resurrection, that these two things are talking about the same event, the same event. So the resurrection occurring here, when the glorious appearing, is the same as the resurrection appearing at the rapture, which would mean that the rapture and the glorious appearing would be the same event. Uh, or at least one following immediately after the other. Let's just turn to the next chapter, to Matthew 25, verse 46. And this is referring to what happens to people when they have been resurrected. Uh, Jesus tells a parable about what's going to happen in those days, and he says, uh, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this is suggesting that the resurrection of all people is happening at the same period, whereas those who hold a pre-tribulation view have to believe that there's the resurrection of the righteous at the time of the rapture and that the resurrection of the ungodly being given uh, new bodies and then being sent to everlasting punishment happens later. This is suggesting that those things happen at the same time. And again, that works if you assume that the rapture comes at the end of the tribulation and is more or less the same event all occurring at approximately the same time as the glorious appearing of Jesus. Finally, let's have a look at Titus and chapter 2, verse 13. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Now, this is quite important because pre-tribulationists will separate the two things that are being said here into two separate events. And this is quite important because we need to see whether this is justified or not. What's being said here is that um, people are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So the pre-tribulationists would suggest that we're looking forward to two events. We're looking forward to the blessed hope, and we're also looking forward to the glorious appearing. The blessed hope then being the rapture when people are caught up, Christians are caught up to be with Jesus. The glorious appearing being at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes in the clouds uh, to fight the last battle and to bring in the millennium reign. However, if you read this carefully, there's no reason to do that. The fact the most plain reading of this would suggest that this is one event. We're looking for one event. We're looking for this single event which is referred to as the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ. It's one event. It's a blessed hope and glorious appearing. In other words, these things happen at the same time. So what I'm suggesting then, and it would be good to sort of expand on this in a lot more detail, 
what I'm suggesting then is that the plain reading of these passages, putting all these passages together, would be this. That at some point in the future, persecution will get worse, and there will be eventually a big trouble, a great tribulation, during which there is widespread persecution, which is not worse than the persecution some Christians are experiencing today, but is widespread and will happen throughout the world. Quite how long that will be, I'm not sure. Uh, it seems to me that that would it would make sense for it to be a seven-year uh, tribulation, but I'm not entirely sure about that. That's really to do with um, other issues as to the peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. After that, at the end of that tribulation period, there should be a rapture where the dead in Christ rise and those who remain rise to be with Jesus and immediately they've risen to be with Jesus in the air. Jesus comes back on the clouds with those saints immediately following that. So it's not that it's, it's one event, but it's one period of time. It's, it's all happening in the same day, the day of the Lord, that there is a rising up and a glorious appearing and that brings in the thousand-year reign. That seems to be the plain reading, and it is, in fact, the, the view that Christians had for well over a thousand years from uh, um, the beginning of time. In fact, the pre-tribulation view only came into existence in the um, 18th century as a, as a result of some odd things said in a, a rather odd church in Scotland. But uh, we can go into that in, at another time in detail. It just seems to me that looking through these scriptures... We're reading about one event. So this is a timeline. At the moment, things are getting bad. Things could get a lot worse. Things will get a lot worse. There will be a big trouble. How long that will last, I don't know. We're told to pray that it will be shortened. I know some people believe it will be three and a half years. Some people believe it will be seven. I'm not quite sure that that needs to be. I need to tie that down, uh, and hopefully I will tie it down shortly as I put together work on this subject. Then at the end of that period, we have um, the blessed hope as we're caught up in the air to be with Jesus. Those who are dead in Christ will rise. Um, and then there's the glorious appearing of Jesus immediately following that as one event. Jesus coming back in the clouds, fighting the last battle, bringing in the thousand year reign. And that seems to be the time scale that we're looking forward to. Now, as I said, I can easily have fellowship with those who don't accept that view, a view that is usually referred to as the historic premillennial view or sometimes as the post-tribulation premillennial view. I can easily have uh, fellowship um, with people in churches that don't accept that, but it doesn't mean that I don't think this is important. It seems to me that that is the, the, the sensible way of reading the scriptures. And uh, it, it's the uh, opinion that I've put in my book on uh, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, the book's called The Letters to the Thessalonians, and uh, you can buy that book from my website, www.just6days.com. And that covers information on the whole of the two letters to the Thessalonians. But I do want at some point when I get the chance to be able to write a book just purely on the subject of what we expect to happen in the future when Jesus comes back. The big primary doctrine, however, is Jesus is definitely coming back. And there are some people who look at uh, prophecies and say, no, everything was completely fulfilled in AD 70. There is nothing else to look forward to. That view, I believe, is wrong, and I think it's right that we put a, make a stand and say, no, 
Jesus Christ has told us he is coming back bodily. He's coming back in the body and we can expect that to happen. And we know that that is going to happen at some point in the future. Well, I will look at my book and articles on my website on that subject. Other books, uh, it's important to look at The Revelation of St. John by George Eldon Ladd. I would also suggest a book by him called The Blessed Hope. And I would suggest a book by David Pawson called When Jesus Returns. And meanwhile, thank you for listening. God bless you. And let's talk again next time. Walking the Dog was a production of New Life Creation Ministries. It can be found at the website justsixdays.com. The program featured Paul Taylor and was produced, written, directed, and everything else by Paul Taylor, who also made the coffee and did all the recording and moved all the little bits around on the computer screen. To find out more about this project, go to www.justsixdays.com.